Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. As most of you know, Monday, uh, we typically have Liberty here, but she has a pressing family matter, so I'm sitting in for you, for her. If you come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head over to officehours.global, our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Today, we'll be doing two hours of general discussion of production and IT-related topics, so it's an excellent opportunity to get your questions answered today. By now, you should be familiar with the Mukana system and where you get your questions into the show system. But if not, just start by heading over to officehours.global and you'll find all the breadcrumbs there leading to the path on how everything Office Hours works. All right, that's the intro. We're done with it. Let's dive into our first question for today. Mitch, what's up? Thank you, Bill. And as Liberty would say, let's get this party started with Brody Brazil from San Francisco. A backup power cord seems like a good idea for an ATEM Mini Pro in my remote kit. Any better options than the $59 version sold by Blackmagic? Courtney's going to start us off here. Courtney? Well, if you don't mind not having the screw collar on it, you can get a, a 12-volt 3-amp supply here on <clears throat> the Amazon for about 10 bucks. With I think that's the right size uh, uh, coaxial connector on it, 12 volts, 3 amps for 10 bucks. You know, I've got mine. Uh, my power supply actually is plugged into a little... Uh, switch and a diverter that lights up some LEDs over the top of my uh, roadcaster. So uh, I divert the 12 volt uh, signal to the uh, ATEM and I have my own connector on it right now. Mitch Hill. A while back, Tom Ferguson showed us a uh, replacement for the actual power cord and uh, it had that rocker switch on it so you could reset when you get the famous ATEM gray. So as long as you had the power supply already, you could put this rocker switch on in line, and it's a great way to reset your ATAM quickly without having to unscrew uh, that little uh, connector that Courtney was talking about. Jeffrey Powers. So that plug that Courtney just showed was actually 36 watt, and plug that you get for the uh, for the ATAM Mini is 60 watts. With that said, you could try to experiment with PoE. You would need a switch that would also do 60 watts as well. Um, you'd have to be uh, basically soldering your own cable if you're comfortable with that. It's not impossible to do that with other cables and, and solder in one of those screw uh, screw cans. But uh, once again, you just have to know how, how, to, how to do it and how to uh, run the tester to make sure that it's giving you the right amount of power into the uh, plug. And Alex from a hotel room somewhere in the Los Angeles basin. <laughs> Whoops, you're muted, Alex. I think it's Zoom muted. Sorry, somebody on the back end muted me, and I can't. It's a big deal, so don't do that. So, so anyway, don't ever do that. So anyway, um, the because uh, it's, it's really far away from me. I think I, I can't. I can't get to it. So um, anyway, so the um, uh, Ata Mini Pro Power, the power. Connection. I can attest that any any uh, twelve volt with more than one amp has has run the. Switcher just fine. So three amps should be plenty, but I, I've plugged all kinds of things into the mini and uh, it has worked just fine. Excellent. Let's move to the next question. And it is Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York with a question. Morning, everyone. For an all purpose photo video camera in studio and on field settings, would the panel purchase a fleet of Sony FX 30s or an A6700 or something else? And why? Thanks. Alex will start us off. Alex, your thoughts. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that in that price range, I think the FX30, I'm on an FX30 right now. Um, it is becoming kind of more of my all-purpose, um, you know, camera. So I think that, you know, the big advantage, it depends on what kind of production you're doing. Uh, I still really like, I mean, I still take for a, a fair bit of productions. My my Blackmagic 6K is something that I like to take on. Um, I think that it actually, when I'm recording footage, the footage recorded by the camera I think is actually better from the Blackmagic camera than it is from the Sony camera. Um, but the issue that I have is that the autofocus is not there. <laughs> so or it has autofocus, but just barely. Um, and so the, um, you know, so the Sony has better fo- autofocus and that's why I have it on the road. Um, so it just depends on how you're going to use that camera. If you're going to have a lot of control and you can, you're treating it like a cine camera, um, then then you then I think the Blackmagic camera is actually a better choice. Um, whereas if you have the um, uh, if you're trying to do what I'm doing, which is kind of self, and you've got you need to have the focus work all the time, then I would probably lean more towards the FX30 or the FX3, uh, which is uh, the kind of the next step up at a full frame sensor um, to uh, to make that actually happen. So those would be the kind of the, that's the the decision process that I probably go through. The 6700 uh, does. Uh, does have some reports of issues in sunlight. So if it's, if it's warm, uh, it, it, it has some issues where it wants to shut down in, in overheating. Not in a studio, not in a regular day, just in a, in a hot day. Um, there have been reports of that. I haven't tested it personally, but there have been reports that it, it will shut down um, in, you know, in a hot weather. Mitch Hill. Yeah, I lean towards the uh, Sony FX series, uh, uh, series uh, because they're very video centric and they can do stills but uh the thing you get when you have a video centric camera from sony is that uh you have a fan in it like the fx30 and the fx3 i'm talking on an fx3 uh the sensor is slightly larger on the uh the fx3 but you know for what we're using in a web situation i don't really see a huge amount of difference between the two and the uh the a6 700s are, are nice looking cameras but they will shut down if they overheat, and that's the uh, might have something to do with the sunlight issue, or if you're pushing the uh, the recorder in it. So I would say uh, FX30 is the best bet financially these days because it's what is it like the third of price of the FX3, which I have right now, and it makes pretty pictures and it's video centric, uh, and uh, it doesn't shut down. Not supposed. Alex- oh, Alexander Knight. Yeah, Mitch uh, hit a lot of the important points there. You have to really think about what what is your primary use case. If you're a photographer, I mean, you can still take stills with the FX30. If you're mostly in a video workflow, the FX30, for obvious reasons, like Mitchell had talked about, not overheating as much as the, the A6700. However, if you're leaning towards more taking stills, then you may want to consider the 6700 or one of the, the, um, the full-frame uh, 7 Series, A7 Series cameras. That's the way I would go. All right. Let's head off to the next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. I've just recently started experimenting with the Stream Deck using the iOS app and Better Touch tool. What applications and shortcuts are for the Stream Deck have you found to increase your productivity the most? Jason, what say you? I really like Sideshow FX and their slew of various stream deck plugins yes you could make these yourself if you had all the time in the world but some of us don't so it's really handy jeffrey 
To me, it really depends on what you're doing. If you're uh, if you're streaming, if you are running Photoshop, if you're running uh, uh, I don't know uh, DaVinci or, or or Final Cut or whatnot, uh, you're always building the Stream Deck for the app that you're building it for. With that said, I've been playing with the iOS app because of the fact that you, you can now get the lifetime access and uh, and of course the 80 buttons. It's really nice to have all that. Uh, I still use Stream Deck with Companion. It seems to be the best uh, overall app for everything but just keep in mind you can there are ways you can mix and match your your apps once you start doing that you got to remember your mac has also got a program on there running and if those if they start clashing with each other next thing you know you're going to run into problems alex yeah second on jason's uh, sideshow effects uh, i'd I could never do what they do. Uh, and it, the, the installs can be a little weird. Uh, you know, like logic is like there's a lot of rigmarole to get it all to work. But but I will say that I just buy theirs for it. I, I, even if I don't know if I'm going to use that, I would never spend that kind of time on building out a Stream Deck profile for a given app. So uh, definitely check them out. Mitchell? Anything it takes to get into Mix Effect. It's just uh, too much of a uh, great app, especially when you're using it with the Stream Deck. So that means... I guess like uh, Jason said, or Jeffrey said, uh, uh, companion is your companion. There you go. Next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, right here on our panel. What is the process for making copies of a massive 70 millimeter film like Oppenheimer? And what is the technology used to do this? We're going to take you to Hollywood, to Courtney Gooden, who's been in those studios for a long time. Courtney, what say you? Well, it's magic, Alexander. I have to tell you, no. uh, the, uh, I, it's a bit of a guess. I have heard him talking about the, the photochemical, photochemical production for the 1570 IMAX print. Um, he tried to keep everything in film all the way down the line. Only the shots that had digital compositing in them were transferred into a computer and then lasered out back onto uh, 50, you know 70 millimeter negative uh, with a laser uh, recorder. But, uh, and then those things were spliced together. They actually finished the cut, uh, you know, in, in, I don't know, in some type of digital editor, I think an Avid, something like that. And then they went back to the key numbers and actually cut the negative, the camera negative. And then they make uh, uh, printing masters from the camera negatives. And I think they divide it up into 2000 foot reels uh, for the printing master. And then those printing masters are contact printed. They run through a contact printer. Once the, uh, in that printing master, the, um, the effect shots are cut in uh, as well. But the rest of it is, is original uh, camera, original that's, that's used to generate the printing master. And then the printing master is the one that prints the uh, contact prints, the release prints. And I think they're in 2,000 foot reels because that's how they have to ship them. And then the uh, in the uh, theater, they assemble them into that big, long 600-meter reel or 604-mile uh, reel, however long it is, uh, for you to see. Uh, the rest of the 70-millimeter prints, the regular 70-millimeter prints, not the 1570, are all optically printed. So they're, they take the camera master, uh, printing master, and they make a, uh, a second dupe negative optically where it's rotated and shrunk down and cropped to a different aspect ratio to fit standard 70 millimeter 233 or uh, 2.3. I'm not sure exactly what the aspect ratio is in 70 they're using, but it's more like a 231 uh, aspect ratio uh, 
instead of IMAX, but their regular 70 millimeter project projection, which is what you'll see in most of the theaters when they say Oppenheimer 70 millimeter. If they're not IMAX and they're not 1570, they're either digital or they're um, uh, or they're optically printed 70 millimeter. Alex. Yeah, and I think that um, I believe that the 1570s are only one or two generations, so they're a lot sharper. Most of the time when you're watching a film, you know, usually there's a copy, there's a master made, then a copy, and then a copy of that, and then a copy of that, um, because you just can't read, you can't use it in the in that contact process very, very often. And so we're only to so many times, you know, so many runs. And because that run is so small, I think that they, that it's a much, it's a slightly, um, I think there's only like a copy, I believe, uh, or two that, that are used for those things. Um, and so it will be a lot sharper because of that, as well as the, the, the size. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing is, is that um, I've talked to a lot of people now that have seen both the 70 and the 1570, and they definitely say the 1570 is a much different experience. They didn't say, they kept on hiding away from whether it was better or worse, but they were like, it's a much different experience to see it in 1570 than it is 70. So if you're a place that has a theater that has 1570, that isn't sold out through the entire run, um, the, uh, then I would recommend going to see it. The I haven't seen it because I can't find that theater. It's made of unattainium. Um, I'm hoping that if things get a little sparse in the fall because of um, you know just the situations going on in Hollywood, they'll bring it back and and uh, maybe play it for another another run of a couple uh, months <laughs> so that we can all actually see it at 5070. But keep your eye out for that, Mitchell. Is it possible that in, during his whole process that you end up with a hard splice? on that 1570 print and, uh, or maybe eventually. And what does that do to the machine when it's rolling through? Is it's a pretty tricky deal putting in a projection? Maybe I, maybe that's a question for Courtney. Well, no, go ahead, Courtney. Well, the 1570 is a rolling loop projector. It's very gentle on the film. Um, it doesn't use, I don't think it uses pull down on the sprockets at all. So it's not yanking the film through a gate like a regular 70 millimeter is. It's a rolling loop kind of thing and it uses air pressure to to uh to hold the film against the gate so it uh it's fairly gentle in the film so i just have to say my experience i thought the movie was two hours long after i finished watching it uh, that's just my review of it i was entranced the whole way through and i knew it was three hours intellectually but it sure didn't feel like that when i was watching it beautiful piece of movie making let's go to the next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asks, you're on a call with someone and you can hear them keyboarding. Can they figure out what you typed? And there's <laughs> a link to it. I don't know. So many variables. Courtney, take a shot at this, dude. Yes, they can. They've, uh, they figured this out. The NSA figured this out years ago. But they have to know the, the type of keyboard that you're using because they have to run a, an audio profile on that keyboard to, to record the sound of each key being typed. And then they can match the sounds that they hear of you typing with the keyboard prof the sound of those keyboards and the keyboard profile and match it up. And with about, like it says, 95% accuracy. It's not 100% because some keys may sound like other keys. So... Uh, once you run it through the AI that determines, you know, the correct words to to make sure that they're nonsense words where keys don't make sense and corrects them, autocorrect, then it's probably quite accurate. Uh, Jeffrey Powers. There's also a combination of of what they do when they're trying to figure out the passwords. First of all, you got to be on 
with your microphone on in a room that's kind of unsecure so you don't know the other people that are there you got to be typing on your keyboard and as Courtney said they have to know the keyboard and of course if your keyboard is full of Cheeto dust then that's going to make a, a big change in how it, how it all sounds but it's also the other part is also about knowing how passwords work like for instance I just got an email saying that passwords have just jumped up with the words Barbie and Oppenheimer in them uh, uh, that was I think NordVP V VPP just uh, just posted that up, and uh, so if they have the commonality passwords, and of course with the uh, with the characters and the key presses, all of that comes into play to make a good guess to what the keyboard is. And then once again, and then the last part is that they have to be listening for the keyboard type to happen because usually in a Zoom uh, on a Zoom call, once it passed, it's gone unless they're recording it. Jason. Yeah, this falls under the the, the guise of, of, you know, great sensationalism, but um, it is called an acoustic sidechain attack. And although the paper is new, the concept is not. It's it's certainly not something that is, let me just put it this way. This would be an, uh, um, a, a, an approach of last resort when it comes to our intelligence apparatus. Um, it's, you know, that that's not really what this is for, but it is a beautiful proof of concept. Mitchell. I'd like to answer in the form of an IBM Selectric. There you go. <laughs> you. My goal in that life is password, someday right? to become important enough, even at a .0001 level, for somebody to try to figure out what I'm writing on the sound of my keyboard. That's never going to happen in my life. Next question. Brody Brazil from San Francisco. My Rodecaster Pro 2 spends many days in a Pelican case and only gets plugged in when used. It also always displays a date and time in the past. Can it not keep its own time with an internal battery? Alex, Alexander Knight. Yeah, as far as I know, the Roadcaster do doesn't have uh, a twenty thirty two battery in it that keeps this this stuff uh, in there. But as far as I know, last time I tested it. When I kept it connected to my network via the like a hardwired connection, the the time stayed up to date automatically. So, if you're not connecting it to a network where it can pull that time, then that's going to be a problem. Courtney, yeah, I think when you plug it into a computer, it pulls the time from the computer or from the network. Um, and I think it has probably a capacitor or something in there. So if you turn it off briefly, it'll keep the time going. But um, it doesn't have a crystal, you know, a, a crystal time code generator like many of your, you know, like our uh, Mix Pre 3s or the uh, Zoom F series. Uh, so it's not going to keep accurate time when it's unplugged uh, for any length of time. And everyone, this is your reminder that today is one of those days where we're going to have two hours of general question and answer. So if you have any questions about anything, technology, video, audio, any of the production arts, it's an excellent time to toss your question into the Mukana system uh, and get the benefit of all the wisdom that the panelists bring to this puzzle every single day. So your questions are welcome. Toss them in and make sure you vote on the questions so that we get the ones that are the most interesting to the most people up at the top the list. That said, next question. Eric Hers from Hartford, Connecticut, asking, Microsoft Teams meeting recap and Zoom IQ are raising concerns about data security. Will some companies seek to deploy a 100% on-premises video streaming option in response? John Pretto, what say you? 
So the uh, the large enterprises that had uh, had disabled anybody inside using ChatGPT or any of the LLMs, what you're going to see is enterprises integrating LLMs within their own enterprise. So none of that data will go out. It'll be all internal. Alex? Particular to the Zoom, I think... <laughs> It's it's the the article that was out that that came out and the the post that was there is not accurate. Um, so so basically what you know they they posted and this is why you have to get multiple inputs on this kind of stuff. So Zoom has a they are gathering data in the general sense of how we how we execute and how we work on those things. When it comes to the generative AI, that is an opt-in feature. <laughs> and so the user has to opt in for that to allow them to make it better. It is they're they're conflating two different pieces of that contract together. So so it is um, the the article is good clickbait, but it's not accurate at all, and you should probably just disregard it as uh, fluff. Well said, and it's good to know. I saw that this morning and I thought, oh, this is gonna cause some kerfluffle. But that makes you Yeah, feel a lot it'll more cause kerfuffle for people who It'll cause kerfuffle for people who don't actually read it. So, so you know, so the I mean, who don't actually read the read what's actually in the content of that process. So, so, and this is why I'm just going to keep on coming back. You cannot just like look at an article and decide that it's true. You know, like these are this is these are someone who it was a knee jerk reaction by someone who didn't who didn't actually do the uh, you know the research that was required, and they just uh, you know they missed it. So anyway, that's well, that's, that kind of thing you, doesn't you, you happen. You always on the have internet. to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> or 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 the press or anywhere or else. Or the press yeah, or exactly. any any other human yeah, to human. Exactly. Con con always 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 look for somebody. Look for another another input for something. You have to always and, and we're good. We're good to, today. We're good. There you go <laughs> for that for that. Yeah, it allows us to move on. Next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. If you were to rebuild your studio today and have any camera and any switcher set up possible, what would you choose and why? And how would it improve your workflow? Jeffrey Powers, start us off. There's many determining factors when it comes to starting a new studio. Uh, the first of all is, are you, is it going to be a one-man studio? Is it going to be a production studio with, uh, with staff? And, uh, and so for me, that's, that's, basically a one-person studio. I love my PTZ cameras. I can go almost anywhere in my studio with these PTZ cameras without having to stand up and, and move things around. Uh, I love the fact that I can also take with these PTZ cameras and send it through NDI and then turn around and also plug in an HDMI ca uh, cable. I ran optical cables on my latest iteration in where they could go right to a switcher and in this case it's going into my ATEM Mini. So if I need to record individual ISOs, I can do that. Or if I just need to just do a show where I don't have to worry about that, I can do that as well. Um, NDI, I just got done talking uh, in a forum with somebody who is ripping out all their NDI, and I got a little bit confused on that. It's like, you should really figure out a cable system for when the when something like NDI fails. Just same way if, if your cables fail you should figure out a way to bring in ndi so you can continue to work and go from there and then of course the dante av is the newest part of this uh this configuration i'm going to have to figure out how to do that so i can test dante uh, equipment uh in uh, in the coming months so uh, it's just that's basically starting to think about how to split up your network so they can uh, they can talk on their own network but then come back into your network so you can uh, manage the cameras alex 
Yeah, I mean, I think that my temptation would, I mean, if I was going to build one now and I and I knew what I knew now, I'd probably get FR7s. FR7s with the, I think, the, the 28 to 1, 135s. So those are, I mean, that, that is a, I mean, for being able to control it, manage it, and having a couple of those, one for an overhead or maybe two for some kind of demo desk as well as one for myself, uh, I think that if I was going to build it and, and money was not a, not, not a limitation, it's really the best one for a home studio um, it, without money being involved. <laughs> um, from there, uh, you know, I, I actually started with a Constellation. So the Constellation was what I had um, in my office um, that moved to actually running the show. So, so that's why my Constellation is this one here. So, so the, um, uh, so that I really liked it a lot. I mean, the, the IO means that you never think about it again. Um, so you have 40 in, 24 out. Um, and so I really enjoyed that one. I probably don't need an 8K. I have an 8K. Our show runs on 8K. I've never seen anybody put in actually 8K into an 8K switcher here. But um, but anyway, so I think that the Constellation is I'm still pretty happy with, and I think I'd go with FR7s. I will say that right now I probably would not try to upgrade anything and just see how things are going. Um, I think that we we saw some releases from Blackmagic that, that had switchers with a lot of Ethernet cables in it, and um, they supported 2110. Um, I think that we probably want to, you know, I would probably wait until after. We're now we're in that place where you get right before NAB and you go, oh, I don't think I'm going to buy anything until I see NAB. We're now very close to IBC, and so I would probably not try to, do anything new until we, we see what happens at IBC. Mitch Hill. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with uh, my Sony Choice uh, FX3 um, and my Mini Extreme and my setup. The only thing that I really, really, really want, I'd love me some uh, Sound Devices 888. That would be, a, since price is no object, otherwise a, a Mix Pre 2, uh, Mix Pre 3 2 would be uh, fine. Alexander Knight. Yeah, I thought this would be a fun thought experiment. Money, no object to, I agree, the the FR, sorry, what was the model? FS, the, whatever the model was. is the F FR7. FR7. Yeah, so I, with money, no object, I definitely would be getting those cameras because one of the most frustrating things uh, that I find with guests is if they, if they tend to shift and move forward in their chair, in addition to just autofocus, being able to, uh, reframe them and move the camera would be hugely beneficial. But the one question that I have, because I'd be replacing five cameras with those, and I haven't seen anybody test this, is is there an application that would allow me to actually control five cameras or however multiples of those in the same network? Can you actually do that? Do you know if you can do that, Alex? You can. Um, so, so the um, so the so Sony has a piece of hardware that'll do that. So you can select through the cameras and do, and that's the I think it's the five R something five hundred. And, and so it is a it is a hardware controller with a joystick and all those other things, and it will control it over the network. Uh, there is the iPad app as well, and that iPad app you can go through the different cameras as well. So you can use the iPad. You can only do one at a time. So you know you have to. It's it's a little bit of a. It's it wouldn't be something I'd want to do if I had to shade cameras for a show, um, but it is something if you're just trying to set cameras up the ipad app is very 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 useful i mean they've really i had to i have to admit sony is not a i'm not always think that their interfaces are the best but they just knocked it out of the park with the ipad app so they they really did that well and so the ipad app is is a great um solution for setting cameras up but then if you're really going to run it in a show and you really want to move it around i'd probably go to the hardware it looks like we're at next question Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington, asking, 
I need to buy external SSD around 5 terabytes for Apple PCs for additional manual backup of GIS data. What brand and models should I look at or stay away from? Portability and speed is not a factor. They want SSDs as more reliable than spinning hard drives. Jason, start us off. Okay, we'll ask and you shall receive. A common way to look at this is MTBF, which is mean time between failures. Uh, really what you should be looking at is the amount of over-provisioning as a as relationship to the amount of the entirety of the drive. That percentage is, should, should be guiding you quite a bit. OWCs are incredibly reliable. Um, they tend to be the best, in my opinion. Alex? Yeah, I would leave. I, anytime someone starts talking about more than four four terabytes, I go, well, you should really look at the OWC NVMe RAID. <laughs> like so, because now you can RAID those up. You can even, you know, it's a software RAID, so that's a little bit of a thing. Um, but but the um, but having, I've got a couple of those, and they work really well, and that you can put a lot more data on them uh, and and RAID them as you like. But they're NVMe's, they're very fast, and they're very stable. Courtney. Yeah, I'd say the OWC, and I, I'm with Alex. I would go for the NVMEs. Uh, they have this one for about 479. It's 2,800 megabits megabytes per second, uh, which is very fast. And they they also make an eight terabyte version uh, that's about 900 and change, uh, which is pretty nice. The nice thing is they're portable, and with USB three and in, and uh, EX FAT, they can go between your PC and your uh, and your Mac without any problem. You could even make a separate partition for each type of machine so that then you could plug it in and just keep your files separated by operating system. Next question. From Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Isn't this a bad look? <laughs> then he's got a link there, and I have no idea what it is. Courtney, did you take a look? Oops, yes, Courtney. I did. I'm not sure exactly what he's criticizing there. This is what the uh, website goes to. Zoom. It's a business site. It looks like a fairly standard Drupal or, you know. Oh, he's probably commenting on the fact that Zoom, the telepresence people have said, please come back to back the physical to office. So he's well, just. Well, that could be what he's talking about. But yeah. uh, I didn't know what he was talking about, about the look. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, they want. Uh, and Zoom of all people who, you know, are dominant in their work from home <laughs> business, ask for their employees to show up. Isn't that strange? Hmm. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I would say that Zoom telling their their employees to go back to the office is like Coca-Cola saying people should stop drinking soft drinks. You know, it's like it, it was just like, why would you do that? You know, like, like, why would you make that announcement? You could you could you know, there's no reason it, it's it really feels like an unforced era. We're obviously big fans of Zoom. But uh, from a from a from this perspective, it seems like, wow, he didn't need to do that, especially not now. I mean, it, it, and I don't I don't understand that model. Um, you know, Zoom is building all these tools to make it easier for us to not have to go into the office and for them to say it themselves. Uh, is probably going to be a very, very expensive mistake. I mean, you know, like just it's because it just undermines uh, a lot of uh, narratives that they've been trying to kind of push forward, um, and it's going to be really hard to roll that one back. So, um, not a, not not a good look. Jeffrey Powers. 
So Zoom not only has to play to you and I, but it also has to play to the enterprise technologies that are using Zoom. And if other companies are starting to say, hey, it's time to uh, have a back-to-work presence, then Zoom has to have that same thing because they power a lot of conference rooms. They power a lot of uh, individual room, Zoom rooms that come inside there. If you go, like, if you go to San Jose, perfect example, there are many different companies have individual rooms uh, where you go in and you start a Zoom session and you uh, talk to somebody in Shanghai and then uh, and then finish the session and come out. So this is where, I think this is where this is starting to come into is so that they, if there's a major problem and a company needs to have somebody on site to fix, they're not getting it from telepresence from somebody uh, sitting in North Carolina. Somebody could actually physically walk into that building, make those fixes, and go on because the people in the in the building that are paying for these services don't want to have to go in and fix the problems. They want somebody to come out and fix the problem for them. Mitch Hill. That is a PR kerfuffle, and I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> Alex, more thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think Zoom has to do it. I think they just they they themselves blinked, you know. And I think that there's you know we're, and and the problem is is really that I mean because they have plenty of people that are in the conference rooms now. I mean, it's not like Zoom. The Zoom offices are empty. Um, I do think that there is there probably is some push related to, hey, we've got all this office space and it's empty and we maybe we should put people back in it. Um, but the uh, but I think that it's it's a mistake because I think that the. Um, I think when we look at it long term, we're going to look at this moment where companies try to pull everyone back in. The problem is, is that, I mean, I have a lot of friends in a lot of these companies and all of them that are getting, if they didn't want to go back in and they're getting forced to go back for a day, they are, um, they're fluffing up their, their LinkedIn's, they're, they're opening the thing that says I'm open for work, not open for work, but they're saying I'm, I'm open for, for headhunters. They're all kind of just opening this up and it's, it's just really going to be a huge brain drain over time for these companies as they, as they try to force it in. And then they're going to give up. They're going to give up on that because some of their top, their the top talent, you know, the, are, are going to be going, Hey, I want to do it the way I want to do it. We're not, the problem is, is that we have a labor shortage and inside of that labor so- shortage, we are having less kids and we're getting older. The, the, the seesaw is leaning towards the, the, um, you know, we, we can say that AI eventually might do something there, but not for this top talent. Um, this top talent is not going to be affected by, by AI anytime soon. And so the thing is, is that to keep that top talent, which is required, I mean, there's so many mistakes that, um, Zoom, that not Zoom, but, but companies make because they just don't have someone in there making good decisions. And, and so I think that, uh, you're, 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 it's going to be very hard to hang on to people who don't want to do that, who want to live somewhere else less expensively with less stress. So you're going to have a, you know, this is the, the, the trajectory is not towards we're going back to the office. <laughs> you know, it's not going to, I mean, cause the cities themselves are, I mean, I don't know. I just walked through a downtown LA yesterday, yesterday, and I would not live here. I would not work. I would not come. I would not, I, I, I would, I would not drive to downtown and, and try to operate inside of downtown LA by choice. It's, it's come apart. So, I mean, I think that's part of the problem as well. Courtney. 
Well, an inter- if you read the article, an interesting fact that they uh, there was a recent study at MIT and uh, University of California, LA, UCLA, that found that workers randomly assigned to work from home full time are 18 percent less productive than those in the office. So that that kind of it goes against what they used to find before, whereas they they'd find more productivity of the people that worked at, at home, uh, you know, and. And came in via Zoom because they could balance their work life a little easier. They didn't have to commute. They could spend more time. And they, with their work right there, they tended to go and do the work if they had to complete the work. And it says also researchers, that has to do with random assignment. So if they're randomly assigning people to come into the office or work from home, uh, that's when it's 18% less. The people that want to work from home, I think they're more productive. So they, that, that particular study, the important uh, uh, part of that data there is they were randomly assigned to work from home. So. In my history is interesting. I, I was fortunate enough to work in the C-suite of the last couple of companies that I worked and dealt directly with CEOs and presidents of companies. And they, it's an interesting thing. All of them had management styles that came, they mostly came through MBA programs and they had been in corporate world for a long time. And so their philosophy for managing to make their company work well had a lot of the the part of what we do is management by wandering around. I need to get out on the floor and I need to walk through the C-suite and I need to talk and see who's doing what. Do they have problems? I need to make my presence known. And then the best of them would go down the the floors into the worker groups and just let them be seen, let themselves be seen be open to hearing from employees and things like that. So a lot of it was psychology and the process. I'm not sure that Zoom meetings have that same kind of thing. You can't really wander around through Zoom meetings in the same sort of way. So I'm wondering if if in business school, if they're teaching, if they're trying to figure out and teach CEOs ways to replace some of these traditional upper management skill sets and adapt them to the new world. I I would think it would be a tough call. Alex, what are your thoughts? I'm not saying companies should become virtual. Like, so, so I just want to make sure we're clear. Like, I'm not saying that that's the future. I think that there's always going to be a head office. There's always going to be things happening. There's always going to be people getting together physically. Um, so I don't think that that is the issue. It's not going to, they're all going to be dispersed. Um, and I think that if you want to be in the C-suite track, so a lot of folks, you know, they get into the company and they get into this kind of traditional, they want to get up and become an executive. They want to become a director. You get paid more money, you become more important. This is what we value as success. And for those people, they are going to need to go to the office. They're going to need FaceTime. They're going to need to do those things that are required. Um, they, you know, for some people starting, I think that it helps them to be around a lot of other people that are doing that. Um, but I will say that there are some people that they really love what they do. They don't want to go up. <laughs> they don't feel like going down. They, they're, they're working away. And I think that exactly what Courtney outlined at the end of his thing is randomly selected and validates the entire thing. Like it, it, that, that research is worthless. <laughs> like if, if you say randomly selected because the people who want to stay at home are a certain type of person. You know, it's, there are definitely people that you should make it available, to, you know, for them to go into the office and, uh, and do what they want to do, you know, and be part of that, that whole process. And I think the way to draw people back into the office is not tell them they have to come back. It's doing cool things 
in the office and making it really comfortable and making it great, getting rid of open offices, like which is the, the worst architectural decision in the last hundred years was the open office. And what people are pushing back on is that disaster, you know? And so if, if you get rid of that disaster and give people their own little spaces that they can be in, that they can be in virtual meetings as well as, as do their work and they don't feel like people are sitting on top of them. Um, so you make it really huge human and you actually do cool things in the office and, and you put them on the company newsletter look at all the cool things we did in the office some people are going to get drawn back to coming into the office at least a day a week just to see everybody and be you know part of tgif or whatever that is and so finding ways to bring people back in that way is the way to do it is, is using carrots using sticks just makes them want to leave you know and and um you know i i think that it's just a um huge mistake, you know, to, to, to force to, I, I just know so many people that are, have either left or are thinking of leaving because they're forced or told their employer, Hey, if I have to do this, I'm probably not going to stay. And then the employer said, "Never mind." <laughs> you know, so, so I think it just depends on, uh, you know, where, where people are, but I think that that's the, the, that's the trajectory. But I think that randomly selected, as soon as I heard that, I was like, well, I don't care about that the research. All right. Uh, my next reminder for those of you who want to put in questions, excellent day. We are doing two hours of general question and answer today. So we're um, three quarters of the way through our first hour. We have our second hour yet to come of Q&A. So if you have questions and have been interested in topics and want to get those questions answered by our panel of experts, perfect day to do it. We'll look forward to hearing from you. Next question. Here's Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, asking, how is the SIGGRAPH coverage shaping up for 3 p.m. Tuesday and 1 p.m. Wednesday Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Tuesday and 3 p.m. Wednesday Central Time? Uh, Alex, bring us up to date. Looks good. I'm here. I'm, I'm right across the street. The SIGGRAPH is right right there, right through this white, this area that's really overexposed at the moment. Um, and so uh, we're excited. We're going to be meeting today and looking at some of the gear. Um, I've been um, fiddling with gear and doing test builds all weekend. Uh, we went. I actually uh, went over to Film Tools and got a couple of bits and bobs and then went to Audio Department and got more bits and bobs. And and so um, so anyway, so we're, uh, we're kind of tweaking all of those bits and pieces uh, and we've been doing lots of tests. Um, we're going to get together with some of the team today, and then um, and then we will be streaming. It's four to six on Tuesday and eleven to one on Wednesday, I believe, unless someone changed something <laughs> that I don't know about. Um, so uh, so that's that's the time we expect to be uh, streaming um, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So stay tuned. Uh, we might have some pretty interesting guests uh, coming on. I know. I'm really looking forward to this. You know, every time we go out and do something live, I I feel like we get a little better at it, and so I'm always looking forward yeah, to I mean, these opportunities. Grant in Australia is definitely and I will be kind of holding it down here locally, and then Alex will be on the show floor, taking you to the things you need to see. You had some more comments, Alex. And the the kit is definitely getting smoother. I mean, I don't think we're all the way there, but we've definitely, you know, it's getting to be less of a, every, every one of these shows, because we keep doing them, um, gets to be less stressful every single time. And so we're learning all the little intricacy, intricacies of the live view of our audio pipeline of our, I mean, for the show, it's a relatively simple audio pipeline of two mics going in, um, for the, for the surround and the HDR and everything else We're you know, we're, those are things that we're kind of, kind of working through, but it's so far, it's been, um, you know, I think that we're about a show or two away. One of the things now we're past the kind of it's painful every time we turn it on. <laughs> so um, so I think that we're going to be doing more test shoots of finding other things to cover, you know, back in San Francisco and other places just so that we can finish this off and really get it refined. 
Um, we're really looking at, you know, I think that there's going to be a contingent at IBC and then another contingent at NAB uh, New York. So, um, so I think that, uh, I think by the time we get to NAB New York, we're going to have a really, and I think IBC is going to go great because the team there is, the teamwork, the European team is really top notch. And then, and then I think New York is going to be a pretty tight show as well. Courtney, you had a thought? Yeah, I was going to ask Alex if he got, ever got the live view to do uh, two camera inputs so that we can send two ISO cameras back to. The We're planning to do that. Switch between two. Yep. Well, so we've got we've got we can that. take up to four inputs. Yeah, we can do up to four inputs. I've got three cameras, but only two transmitters. <laughs> so so anyway, so we'll so we've got um uh we've got uh we we will be um tr- you know doing a multi cam switch with two Teradex uh, going into the live view. Um, so that that is planned not for the HDR test. That'll still be a single camera, but for the um for our um the the, the general coverage yeah. or the general coverage. Uh, we'll have two cameras. So we'll have a wide camera. I got a new lens. I got a 14 millimeter uh, <laughs> lens. And so, so it should be, it should be really nice. I mean, I think that at about three feet, we can have two or three people in front of it. And it's a, it's a little wide, <laughs> probably need one in between as well. Um, but the, uh, but, but I think that it's a, it's going to look, uh, it's going to look really good for the amount of money I'm spending on the lenses. I kind of feel like I should just go to an FX three and, and just go back to a 2.8 you zoom. You're going anyway, with a prime but, but, though, instead of a zoom though. You know, I, I, I still feel like I, I think it's my uh, I, I still like for the interviews, I'd rather have people just moving, moving to where they need to go, you know. And, and so um, I don't uh, and the, the, the big advantage is, is that I think that we're going to be able to if we want to, we can it gives us the option to go all the way out to one point four. Um, so it just really lets us soften that background if, if, if we need to where we're kind of stuck at two point eight. This is the limitation of having a full frame versus a super 35 is that a lot more stuff's in focus. And so I want to have the, the headroom to do that, but I am probably going to go ahead and get um, somewhere in the, in the not too distant future, a 24 to 70, just to have, you know, a zoom available to us that we can throw on and really play with. Especially for the close up camera, the, the second B camera to shoot insert. Second camera has got 24 to 70. Oh, <laughs> second, okay, the second, yeah. So the second, yeah, we've got a different, uh, different lens package for the second, the second one. Yeah. So we, we, we should be able to zoom there. This shouldn't be as much of a challenge since I think it's all indoors, isn't it? Are there any outdoor exhibits to SIGGRAPH? Are they all um, There is, uh, yeah, there's, it's all indoors. So I, and I, I think it's, I don't even think there's any open, I mean, there's windows in some of the areas that we'll have to manage, but yeah, it's all indoors. So it's, it'll be a lot more manageable than it has been in the past. And, and, you know, the Rye in, in uh, Amsterdam is indoors as well as the, uh, obviously, um, Javits is, is indoors as well. So the, I think the only one we have to really deal with the outdoor, um, el- the elements is uh, Cinegear. And if, if Cinegear wasn't the coolest conference in the world, uh, I would not go. <laughs> like, I just have to say, the I, toys hate are just I hate, too I hate going to that lot. Uh, there are so many things I hate about that, of, of the format of where they do it. I get that it's really cool that they're doing it in the Paramount lot, and I'm sure that it's less expensive. Um, but it is super painful to shoot in. And, um, and I, and I really hate everything about that, except for the fact that the density of things that we want to cover, it's every single booth is like, Oh, this is really cool. You know? And so that's, that, so that's why we'll keep on going to Cinegear, but that's, that's it. <laughs> so oh, you just go for the food at that little restaurant at the corner outside. I know that. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, asking, what are the panel's thoughts on using modern tech like HDR and Dolby Atmos as it applies to older movies created before there was available? And how about replacing original Foley and sound effects improvement or revisionist? Jason Bates will start us out. Jason? 
Well, um, it, the two are not mutually exclusive. I'll limit my answer to audio and, and leave the rest for the rest of the panel. Um, it depends on the quality of the stems. I mean, so what, what, um, what Atmos brings is the addition to, um, in addition to multi-channel, it gives you these objects that can be panned in 3D space. So, uh, you know, assuming that that's what you are adding, it depends on the quality of the stems. Do you have that original thing that you can take the object and move and map in a way that, that, that will be good or, or, you know, will it detract? And the, the answer is, as with all remastering, it can be done well and really badly. Alexander Knight. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because unfortunately a lot of movies that are getting re-released now with all these remasters, they're not necessarily done with the approval of the directors and the director and the original creative visionary may not even be around anymore to sign off on it. Uh, one of the examples I was just actually looking at was the recent 4K release of the 1989 Batman movie directed by Tim Burton and it got an all new color, an all new scan, new color treatment treatment uh, Dolby Atmos soundtrack and I noticed that they replaced the original sound effects. Now, the original sound effects, like the gunshots, were already dated at the time. I mean, those sounds, I think, were from the 60s or 70s, so they already sounded old. But it got me thinking about, from a purist perspective, is that something that we should be doing without the approval of the, of the director? Alex Lindsay. I think it'll depend on the director. I think a lot of directors would have used it if they had had it. <laughs> you know, it's not like they would say, oh, we can make our, our, our movie that much better, but we want to really keep it in, you know, in stereo or whatever it was. Um, you know, most people want to use up that technology. I, I do think that we probably ought to look at the artistic intent of the director and find, you know, I, I do think we're talking to them about that. And I would, I would definitely say having them involved, you know, in the, you know, if, when, they're, when they're available. Now, if, they're, if, they're, if they've passed and we're doing that, I think that that's a different situation. But but I'm um, talking to uh, if the directors are still alive, talking to them and, and having them um, you know, be part of that, that conversation. I will say it's I find it to be kind of a surprise and delight moment when I turn on. I've got a pretty good sound system. And when I turn on an older movie and suddenly there is surround in it and it looks really great on the TV and everything else. I'm like, wow, this is this is better. I, I have a hard time watching older films because I'm just like, Oof. you know, like, you know, and, and um, from a technical perspective, I have a hard time getting over that sometimes unless it's a really, really good film uh, or TV show, and so when I, when I get a TV show where they or or a film that they went ahead and did the upgrades to it, I'm always kind of again. I think it's a surprise and delight moment. I don't. I very rarely complain about it. Courtney Gooden, I'm going to say it depends. Uh, uh, what's interesting is when they take silent films that had no sound that were shot in the 1906 era, 19 up to 1923 and go back and foley them and, and put in foley and sound effects. It makes them very interesting. If you go on and look for a trip down Market Street, which was a, a long uh, dolly shot put on the front of a top trolley on Market Street in San Francisco, shot in 1906, like the week before the earth, the big earthquake. And it's amazing that somebody has gone through and done foley and sound effects. And, and it's, a, it's a fairly long uh, it's 13 minutes long, this one shot uh, as it travels down Market Street. And it's an amazing uh, glimpse of history. And they have gone to incredible detail to add in, you know, the sounds of the Model Ts and the clip-clops of the horses and people fully, you know, sound effects of people shouting in the street, uh, 
horn horns from uh, the cars of the the period and the streetcar sounds. It's pretty amazing when you go and listen to it. Even it even rains at one point, and you can hear the horses clip clopping through the puddles of the sound. So. And of course, we know there was no sound recorded in the original, so that's pretty amazing. They're also going back and uh, they're redoing uh, a soundtrack for uh, Lawrence of Arabia, the uh, David Lean 70 millimeter shot in 70 millimeter. And they're remastering that and uh, in Atmos, I think. I've heard one or two scenes of it uh, at a, a simply demonstration of what they've done so far. It's interesting, but I kind of like the original sound to begin with. And the movies of the 30s and 40s, you know, they were all done on optical soundtracks. So they all were run through an Academy filter, which uh, means the dialogue is very clear. You have no trouble like you do on a Christopher Nolan film of understanding the dialogue like you do on today's full frequency mumble, mumble tracks. The dialogue is all recorded on a boom from overhead and uh, all recorded through that Academy filter, which limits the frequency response to just the neighborhood of where voices land for all the dialogue. So that that makes, uh, you always wonder when you look at those films of the 30s and 40s, how did they get the dialogue so clear and understandable? Well, that's how. Use an optical soundtrack and uh, Academy filter about uh, uh, 400 to 4,000 hertz. Alex, Lindsay. I was listening so much to Courtney, I forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> That's all right. Take a moment. I was like, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Alexander Knight's next in line. I'll ask you after that. Alex, make your point. Yeah. So, Enter the Dragon just came out on 4K. And it's interesting because that movie came out in 1973. And uh, that wasn't originally uh, done as a mono soundtrack. So, I'm curious. It now has a Dolby Atmos soundtrack. And from a review I was watching, they said that the Atmos soundtrack was actually quite impressive for such an old movie but i'm curious from a technical perspective obviously that person who's making the atmos mix has to make very creative decisions about what goes where because the original director is now no longer involved but also how would you do that if the original audio was just mono alex Lindsay. Yeah, what I was going to say before was, by the way, there's a bunch of stuff um, of old films dating back all the way into the late 19th century through the 20s that people have been using AI, much like what Peter Jackson was using to rebuild them, to fix the frame rates and to to clean them up and up-res them. I would highly recommend it. There's a handful, like what what Courtney said, where they added all the Foley, um, and I would highly recommend watching them. They're just, uh, it's just this it's a glimpse into the past that is just fascinating. Um, as far as the, as far as how would they do it? And a lot of times it's extracting those, those channels, um, more and more we're using, and people are using AI for that, um, where you can basically look at those things and it's, it's actually pulling those out and separating those tracks out. You can even, if you want to see what that's like, there's a, there's an app on the iPhone called Moises and it is a, um, you can upload, you can buy the track on iTunes, you upload it to Moises and it'll give it back to you with the bass and the, and the electric guitar and the voice and the, that's what's, you know, that's what these things, the AI stuff can do now is process all of that and pull it all back in. And so, um, so that is a, uh, they're extracting some of that. And then in some cases, I think that they're adding more sounds back in, you know, a lot of those sound effects were added before. So if you're extracting those out, you may replace them with something that's a little bit more crisp. Courtney. Yeah, I was going to say the in the demo that we saw on Lawrence, uh, they only had the six-track uh, release 
sounds of from magnetic uh, mag, mag stripe uh, release prints from Lawrence of Arabia. So they did not have any of the original uh, stems, uh, just the release, you know, six track release, which had the music, I think, in the left center right. And, um, and the music, I think, was, I don't know if it was in stereo or not, but they did uh, say they used AI to go in and isolate uh, certain sound effects and move them so they could make them dimensional sounds so they could move uh, airplanes flying over, you know, that were just mixed in the, in the regular dialogue track to move them dimensionally in Atmos to have them fly over the top of you and so on. And that was pretty uh, exciting. The dialogue didn't seem to be improved to, to any degree, but uh, the music sounded a little better because they split it out. I think the original music track was actually only mono on the release prints. So they were able to spread the music out a little bit using uh, uh, AI trickery to isolate the individual instruments and place them and, and spread them out to a broader perspective. And that sounded pretty good. Uh, but for the most part, it sounded pretty much similar, except for a, a few gimmicky shots where things, uh, artillery shells are flying over, or firing off behind you. Let's go to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asked, amidst the smartphone sales slowdown, the iPhone 15 will go on sale September 22nd. Discuss. Uh, Jeffrey Powers is going to start us off. Jeffrey? Well, to begin with... Uh, Apple will always come out with uh, the iPhone every year at the same time. Everybody's expecting it. It's you, you put a familiarity to it, and then people kind of work to ramp up to it. With that said, there is a lot of smartphone uh, slumps right now. Uh, Samsung just came out with their Flip 5 and their Fold 5, and they're like at 90, they're like a 90% slump. They're expecting quarter two to be a lot better right now. All of Korea is really concerned about that. Uh, but we'll have to see what happens there. As for the iPhone 15, the two major features that are rumored to be in the phone is an action button, and possibly if you get the Pro, you can get Wi-Fi 6E into the Pro. So with that, uh, some people are wondering if the features are not to the point where they want to get a new phone. Uh, a lot of people go on a two-year plan for their phones, so they might they might have the 14 and they might wait for the 16. Some people do three or four years uh, plans. The U.S. market's at 85% uh, smartphones right now. The world market's a, a little bit less than that, but um, the real question is, do they do they want to plan to buy a brand new phone that doesn't do what they really need it to do or keep the phone that they already have that does everything that they need it to do? Alexander Knight. Yeah, I admit that I used to be the kind of person that would always buy the new iPhone every single year, but I've stopped doing that. I, you know, it's one of those things that the technology has gotten so good with these iPhones. Now I have a iPhone 13 Pro Max and I'm still very, very happy with it. And, you know, I lease these things for a two year contract and then I hand it in and get the, the next one. So I'm fine with waiting a little bit longer. Obviously, a lot of people are in the same boat as me. They seem to hang on to these phones for a little bit longer now because the cameras are, are so good on these things and yes there are always incremental upgrades every single year and i would love to have a new iphone every year but i also don't want to go into debt for a new phone so that's my perspective alex Lindsay. 
Yeah, you know, Apple has so far not really followed the rest of the industry's trends when it comes to mobile devices and probably won't anytime soon. Um, the the other thing that, that we're seeing is a lot of erosion in the Android market as far as the percent the market market share. So um, a lot of those folks are not necessarily going from one iPhone to another, but they're coming from Android to the iPhone. Usually some feature was finally something that they you know had to have or um, they finally got brutalized by the green bubble. <laughs> so then they decide to move over. Um, uh, you know, the right now, uh, 80% of uh, kids under 18 or people under 18 are on an iPhone now. And, uh, you know, when I talked to my kids about it, it was really brought up that it was the, the bubbles are serious, like a serious thing uh, in high school. And so, um, so I think that we're seeing, you know, Apple is pretty good at predicting what they're going to, what's going to happen. And uh, so far, it looks like it's going to be probably a pretty good quarter, like every, almost every other Apple quarter. Um, And so they've got, um, and one thing to note is also watching Apple slowly diversify away from the iPhone. So they're working on services, they're working on um, you know, a lot of other other devices and, and uh, software. And so you're seeing them slowly try to push that piece of the pie down. Um, so I, I think that they're not, they are paying attention to, there's a certain point of saturation. Um, but I also, um, Apple is, I think, focused pretty pretty uh, intently on India. Um, India is seeing huge growth for Apple right now. And so you'll probably see more uh, focus on that as we as we move forward. I'm a little weird with this because I have a business phone and a personal phone, and I always keep the business phone right up to date because I usually shoot enough of my professional work on it to make that a depreciable asset for the business. And then if the IRS ever says, well, do you have a different device for your personal? I go, yes, here it is. It's on a separate number, separate billing, and that way I can deduct my primary business phone for what it is. Um, But... I never thought I would do that, but it's been a really positive thing. One of the little tiny things I love is that by the time I spend the day using my main business phone, the battery is usually, um, you know, down at third or quarter, something like that. I start very early, as you can imagine, from office hours. So then I just put it on the charger and switch to my other phone. And for the entertainment stuff in the evening and stuff like that, I use my larger screen phone. That works really well for me. Mitch? Yeah, if um, if I had a reason to upgrade my iPhone six right here, this is a six, folks. Uh, I would do it if they had an AI that could screen all my calls. That to me would be something. Alex Lindsay. <laughs> it generally it generally comes down to the camera. You know, I think that most for most of us that have the last two or three generations of the iPhone, uh, it is. I think that the Android phones are very competitive as well. But what's happening is, is it's exactly what Mitch is showing is people decide I'm going to I want that camera. And then they're either on an Android or so you don't want to look at people just just buying every other year. You have a huge number of people that are on an iPhone six. They're on an iPhone eight. They're on an iPhone 10. When does that threshold hit? And there's hundreds of millions of them. When does that threshold hit that they go, oh, this is the this is the time I'm going to upgrade. So it's not even people choosing every year or every other year. There's some people that aren't upgrading um, my, I think my wife didn't upgrade for four or five years, you know, you know, she was like, it's good enough. And then once, but I wouldn't, at some point I wouldn't let her take pictures of the kids when we were together, if we were all out, I was like, you can't, don't, don't, don't do that. Let me take the photo. So, so, um, and so the, uh, and so I think that, um, that's the camera really drives a lot of that. And it's just when someone hits a breaking point where they've decided there's enough distance between that. So there's, so when you think about it, don't think about it as one year, two year, three year, think about that huge group of people that have bought them since the beginning and when they decide to, you know, upgrade. So you're just, you're kind of, um, you know, kind of digging into that, that group and, and, uh, and moving them forward. 
Jeffrey Powers, you had a follow-up thought? Yeah. uh, First of all, uh, there's two technologies that that, uh, people are watching for. The first one is the folding technology. That's here. It's happening. But their only problem is it's got a a plastic surface over. And people that use Apple, they, they love that glass surface. And there's no way to fold the glass surface. Second thing is the VR technology and the Apple Vision Pros and how that's going to affect everything. As for the students, uh, you know, mostly kids get their phones from their parents. Usually that happens around the holidays. So any type of surge that happens is going to probably happen around the late October to December 20th, uh, 25th when they get their new phones in and you know, underneath the tree or, or wherever, however they celebrate. Uh, so those are, the, those are the factors that you ha- really have to put into play when it comes to this. So speculating right now that we've got a downward slump that's always going to happen it actually happened in 2014 it actually happened uh, uh 2012 so we're just in that same slump right now alex you had a follow-up yeah and, and the main thing is, is you're really looking for what are the new features that might bring someone in so you know it'll be the thing that you usually pay attention to the number one driver of cell phone um purchases or phone are their camera like it's it is the that is if you look at all the things when they ask people why they bought the new phone, they wanted a better camera. And so what we're, a lot of us are looking for the Periscope and whether the Apple's going to use the Periscope, which is used by other cell phone manufacturers right now, which gives them the ability to have a larger chip um, and get much more, you know, zoom power. So we'll see if, the, if that happens. That's the thing that kind of trips people that might be two, three, four years behind. Um, but generally, the thing that sells phones is cameras. Um, I don't see Apple doing flip are folding phones probably for three to five years. Um, they're not, the technology is still, um, you know, new. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. YouTube documentation says that HLS ingest is required for streaming in HEVC HDR. However, Mimo Live does not support HLS. Would the best approach be to have a transcoding server in the middle or to use another software product? Alex, what did it say you? Well, I'm not sure that Mimo Live also supports uh, HDR. So I think you'd have to make sure that it's actually supporting HDR to make it worth doing that process. Um, so, but if you did that, what you can do is send it to AWS. So you could basically do an RTMP into AWS and from AWS repackage it. Uh, when we do our HDR tests that we do here, we're, we're using Zixi and, and, the, and the Elemental UHD link to go to AWS and from there we package it up as a as an HLS stream. So um, that can definitely be done. There is some quirkiness to it. Um, the HLS, um, the way that AWS does H- HLS out of the gate is not the same as the way that YouTube does it. And they, they both think that they're right. <laughs> so, so the, um, and, uh, and so you have to do a little bit of um, uh, tweaking to the, to the JSON to get it to work correctly, but it, it can be done and we do it successfully regularly. Next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, B.C., Canada. When a digital 4K Blu-ray master is made from a scan of a 35 or 70 millimeter film, some machines scan at 4K and in very rare cases, sometimes 8K. For preserving the resolution and grain, is there a benefit to scanning at 8K? Alex Lindsay. 
I mean, there's an argument always to scan at the highest resolution you have so that you, you can always go back and have more overhead to, to do that. So sometimes there's a and there is there can be an advantage of oversampling. So if you scan an image um, at a really high resolution and then you scale it back down again, um, as it kind of comes together, it may uh, get rid of some of that grain. But a lot of times people say, well, that's what I want. I want the grain <laughs> that's still in there. So so um, so that, the, you know, you have to make a decision about that. I think that there's probably not a lot of resolution to get if you go more than 4k for a super 35 i don't think there's anything there there's not there's not a lot there for you (laughs) so uh you know but at at 70 millimeter 8k would definitely be the right right choice courtney you want to expand yeah 70 millimeter you might want to go 8k especially if you're going to be uh looking at it on your new samsung onyx 8k movie screen which is a discrete led screen that alex and i saw one of but they didn't have a delivery so format good. they didn't have a server so that could good. deliver it uh at high enough speed so they they didn't have one that has a dci protected uh you know encoded the problem is with the 8k screens is they don't have an encoded format yet it's protected uh from copying so uh there's limited amount of stuff that you can see in it, only copyright-free stuff. Yeah, so they're a, f- a feared that uh, somebody could make a perfect copy of an 8K scan uh, because there's no digital encryption on it yet. Alexander Knight. It's really, I mean, just even 4K scans, I've really noticed because I I love older movies. And when I watch some of these black and white movies from the 50s and 60s that have been scanned at 4K or even 8K, it is, and with HDR, it is just astonishing how good they look. They did an 8K scan of My Fair Lady on and have released it on Blu-ray, and it, it looks incredible. It doesn't even look like it. It just looks like a, a like a newer movie that was done in black and white. Mitchell Hill. There's a, isn't there a point of diminishing returns when you're watching at home 10 or 15 feet away from the screen and you're looking at 4K versus 8K or even 1080? Um, I, I honestly don't see some of those differences from that far away looking at the screen. Alex. HDR? HDR I would see, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, 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 there is a lot of math there depending on how far away. Um, I, I'm not 10 to 15 feet away, though. So I'm only 6 to 8 feet from my screen. So um, so in, in that case, you definitely can see the difference between 1080p and 4K. 4K to 8K is, um, you know, that really you have to have a – I don't think that 8K on a screen – smaller than uh, i think the math is 8k is only useful if the screen is 85 inches or larger and you are less than 10 feet away so you know if you're not doing that math um then it's probably not you know 8k probably doesn't make sense but again scan as alex experience is probably not at 8k that scanning at 8k and scaling down to 4k um will will kind of blend in a lot of other things as well. It's over it's called over, oversampling and it it can often um improve it. Sometimes it smooths it out and people don't like that, but it can often uh improve it with a bi bicubic uh sampling. Next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona asked, Mac guy looking to remote into a PC on the same network. What's your favorite way to do remote login, favorite systems, team viewer, parsec, splash top, etc. And which one is best on the same network? Jeffrey Powers, start us off. On the same network, uh, Apple Remote Desktop, hands down. I mean, it's it's going to be as secure as like a, a SSL or or, or TLS, uh, easy. Um, and of course, uh, if you're using something like. Uh, uh, if you're using something like TeamViewer, you're, you're paying for that service. Uh, your security is really uh, the 
your worst desktop and bringing that in from there. So it's you're 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 going to be fine. I use remote desktop on my iPad to my PCs. I use it from my Mac to my PCs. It does a great job. And uh, there's an alternative of ND using NDI as a remote net. Uh, desktop use the security on that is a little bit more questionable so unless you're in a financial situation uh, working at a financial or like a bank or something like that uh, then these are the remote desktops going to be the free way and the easy way to do it jason beige i love apple remote desktop i I will respectfully disagree with jeffrey Uh, there is a little bit more involved if you actually need ssh you you know there's a little bit of script foo here where you have to create a key pair set the host and then do a login um and after that remote desktop for mac os works beautifully the other way you can do this is the microsoft remote desktop app that is available on on the mac app store and that is written by microsoft that too does a great job Mitchell Hill. Team Viewer. <laughs> One more time? Team Viewer. Team Viewer. Oh, okay. I, for some reason, that didn't come across clearly to me. Uh, thank you. Jeffrey Powers, you had a follow-up? Yeah, when I said Apple, I actually did mean Microsoft's remote desktop, not Apple's. I apologize on that. Ah, okay, no problem. As long as the information gets out to Jack, who asked the question, and it has. Next question. From Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. How concerned are you with network security in your production networks? Do you do any network monitoring or centralized logging to find and identify any issues? Jason Bache, walk us through it. Um, My production networks are never, uh, they never touch the internet. I use an edge router. And so, you know, for example, this this right now is my voice on Dante, you know, using Spectre with all these fancy little blippity things. And that that network is completely off of, um, it, it can't touch the network even if it wanted to. Um, so that's how I fix that. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, you should always be worried about security you know, to make that to make that work. Uh, so, you know, it, it depends on, you know, what level of security, depending on what projects we're working on, uh, really impacts how we view that. Um, our networks are generally sitting on a Meraki system from Cisco, and there's a lot of monitoring that's available of knowing you know where things are coming and how they're working it's a little bit more expensive um but it's it's relatively easy to i mean cloud-based um processing and monitoring is has has been pretty pretty useful but we haven't gone much past that other than you know really where your security breaks down is human error so trying to make sure that people are doing what they should do um is is usually the hardest part of the of the puzzle mitch hill yeah i've mentioned before i have pharmaceutical clients they require air-gapped. So far, nobody's been able to break that. Next question. Next question from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm an AV novice just trying to set up a good home Zoom studio for remote work and board meetings. I'm struggling to eliminate the HVAC sound. It's far away and behind doors, but people can still hear it. Is it time for a pre, a mixed pre or similar? Alex. I know I'm not a good example today. Uh, I somehow left my house with the one mix pre that for some reason the license isn't working. So, so I'm going to get that fixed uh, today. But uh, hopefully by tomorrow that'll be sorted out. But the um, the mix pre is magic. I mean, I will tell you that the the noise assist on the mix pre is just better than all the other ones by a long shot. So I would highly recommend thinking about it. It's a big cost. It's a thousand dollars to buy the mix pre with uh, with the license. It's three hundred. You know, the three hundred dollars. The whole thing together is not. 
900 or a thousand dollars. And, um, I, again, I, I, I grabbed this last last week. I haven't been able to get it fixed, but I, I will tell you that the, um, in general, uh, the, um, when I have a mix pre with the noise assist, uh, the hum that you may be hearing right now is gone, you know, and it it really is, it makes it really um, nice. And I wouldn't want to depend on just, uh, zoom or, or whatever you're using to do the, the noise assist, the mix pre makes a huge difference. So I would highly, highly recommend it. Mitchell Hill. Uh, I agree with Alex. Nothing's better than, uh, noise assist in, uh, from our sound devices. However, uh, as an alternative, the best place to start with noise reduction is at the source. So if you got an HVAC and it's a little bit noisy, consider the uh, the velocity of the air coming out of the vent. Maybe the vent needs to be a little bigger. Um, if you have the luxury of being able to adjust the uh, 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 baffles to go into the air conditioning system, even a 90-degree turn uh, with the, uh, the ducting will make a huge difference in the quality of sound. So try to eliminate the sound at its source, and then you can employ your mix pre. Alexander Knight. Yeah, I agree. At the source is always best. I'm just curious. I don't know if there's a air vent going into that room. If it's not, and the sound is just coming from whatever's behind the door, I would check to see what kind of gap you have at the bottom of the door there. You can, for very little money, get rubber stripping, uh, weather stripping, and maybe put that, fill that at the bottom of the gap between the door and the floor, and see if that maybe knocks it down. Even a couple dBE would make a difference as well. And then, of course, the mix pre is a good solution. Jason Beish. And for about a third of the cost, a solid dynamic mic like the High LPR 40 has excellent off-axis rejection. You can't, like, th- this This is the cheapest hack that there is. Get a good preamp and, and a solid mic, and that may very well fix your problem. And on my side, I use this guy, which is the Universal Audio Apollo Solo. I'm running a piece of software in it called C-Suite, which is uh, a Cedar implementation. That was the kind of original high-level noise reduction. And it has allowed me to do work in here that I used to only be able to do in the voice booth. You know, I'm now doing some audio book work, so I'm in there for hours and hours. And boy, it's nice to be able to work in a 10 by 10 office with air conditioning and the rest of that, as opposed to being stuck in a voice booth for a three-hour recording session. So there's some great solutions out there, and they really work well. So thank you to the technology industry for making these tools available to us all. Next question. From Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. Has any planning started for NAB New York? I'm local and can contribute as crew with gear. Who to contact? Alex Lindsay. Alex, take it away. Uh, as soon as we get out of, uh, I, I'm trying to, at least for the different teams, trying to stay focused on one uh, one at a time. So uh, so we're very focused on Seagraph. Uh, IBC is obviously a, a different team, uh, or some of, the, some of the team will cross over, but a lot of the team is local to Europe. Um, and so as they get ramped up for that, um, probably next week you'll see a call for, um, for people who are interested in working on NAB. Uh, I'm going to find out a couple things uh, with NAB to make sure that we, we kind of have our, our uh, ducks straight there. But we'll probably start, on, start planning for NAB um, as early as next week. Um, so the, that'll, that'll happen. Uh, we just want to get out of this one before we go into the next one. But now we're kind of get 
always going to have one in pre repro. So we're kind of just getting to this, this zone. Um, IBC has their own pre pro. So that overlaps a little bit, but we'll be looking at who wants to be there. So if you're interested in being there and you're in the East coast, um, yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, I think we're going to see how far we can push it for, you know, really trying to get ready for a great 2025. I think we've learned a lot. We learned a lot in 2022, um, or 2024. I mean, We've learned a lot in 2022 and did a lot of great work. We've learned a lot of things this, this, um, and we've had a lot of great support as well from some of our partners. And, uh, we hope to turn it up a couple notches, um, in, uh, in, uh, 2024. And I think that IBC and NAB are going to be kind of us really trying to tie this all the way in. Mitchell Hill. Uh, NAB New York should be very interesting because it used to be the audio engineering society meeting at the Waldorf Astoria. So, uh, Going to this particular uh, event at the Javits Center uh, and seeing them hooked right. up with uh, NAB means it's going to be very broad-based. But I, I think, think there's going to be a heavy audio influence. That I don't think that a the AEC. I don't. I mean AES. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's in the same week anymore. I think they they separated those two, which is super. I thought they mixed them together. They used to. Um, they did until last year, and so this year I think that there's some separation there, and, and that was. Uh, I, I, you know, all, all these conferences, I'm like, it, it's bad enough that it's harder to get people to go. And now they're moving all their dates around and they're conflicting with each other or separating from each other. Uh, you know, we had NAM overlapping NAB. We've got, you know, and so all this movement, I don't think improves their situation. So, um, but uh, yeah, I think that I think it's now a week or two apart, which makes it extremely hard for people like us to cover it. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Notre Dame recently produced a cybersecurity carnival which used a carnival theme to build security awareness on campus. Have you ever seen any unconventional user training methods that work? <laughs> Alex Lindsay. Yeah, we have seen some where we, where we, um, I worked on a, on a project where we were streaming it for someone and they were really, they were doing again, security, but it was all kind of more physical of how to get through something. You had to figure something out. And the idea was to take things that were very theoretical about how servers work and everything else and make them more physical. I, I think it worked. People had, a, uh, people had a good time doing it. It was a day off of work and they got to go do this thing. I don't know how much more they learned. I think for some people um, it became more real for them what that meant. Um, but I, but I, I'm not sure how, how great it was, but they, I, they definitely had a great time. So for me, the first kind of odd training thing that I thought really worked brilliantly, Pike Place Market in Seattle. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there, but they tend to throw fish around a lot. And somebody got the idea to to make a training series of videos that had to do with cooperation and teamwork. And they shot the whole thing inside Pike Place Market. And, you know, these are large fish. These are tunas and things that come off the boats in Seattle. And it was a brilliant combination because you were watching something that was engaging and unusual. And then the scripting part of it, which was brilliantly done, attached the ideas of teamwork and cooperation and the rest of the things they were trying to train to that environment. So if you can if you can do both the education piece and take people to something they've never seen before that's visual engaging, you can really kind of emphasize both and engage people brilliantly. The other thing that I remember is that little animated who moved your cheese thing which became a gigantic kind of industry in the training world and the idea of a simple parable fable type thing that is crafted into the story so you're, you're thinking more of you're telling a story rather than you're just producing dry training that turned out to be very engaging and was very popular for a long time 
many years ago. So look up those two examples and you see people doing training, but paying attention to how to add entertainment back into the training, but not the kind of entertainment that's distracting, but is organic to the message of training you're trying to get across. Next question. From Felix L.G. Robillard in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Has anyone tried the Atomos Castex add-on for Ninja 5 and the new desktop app they released for extended control via computer? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Alex Lindsay. Haven't tested that yet. I, mean, I think the only thing that I have right now that are Atomos, we're going to be actually using some Atomos products in the uh, in our coverage of Seagraph. Uh, I think one of our team members is bringing in Atomos, so we'll, you'll see it in the behind-the-scenes photos. Um, and I have a Zato, which I haven't been too, too, too successful with, but I am. I have been assured by some people in our group that the Zato can do more than, than I've been able to test it for, so we're, we're kind of playing with it there. Um, but uh, I think that um, Atomos makes a lot of great products. Uh, it, we're looking forward to testing testing that out when we can get one into the office. So stay tuned for more on that. Um, I, we're definitely interested in more of their monitoring solutions. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the best place for work at home and digital nomads in the world? Let's go to Alex Lindsay. Alex? I think, it's, I think it's less about a certain place and more about a certain set of environments um, for folks. So I, I, what I would say is that um, for, for digital moment, number, the number one thing is bandwidth. <laughs> Being able to get bandwidth. No, I mean, most people that I know that have been kind of moving around and, and, and there's digital, I mean, there's digital nomads and that's a different thing. That's really just Starlink. And I have, I have some friends that are digital nomads and they have Starlinks on the top of their RVs and they're just working wherever they're working. And I get pictures from the beach and then I get pictures from the mountains and they're just programming away. <laughs> so they, so that, that if you're really truly a digital mat, nomad, but if you're talking about uh, work at home, when people are making choices, I don't know anybody that I've known that have moved, that has moved out of a lot of, not a lot, but a fair number of my friends have moved out of the Bay area. And what they're looking for is number one, they got to see, they got to have a reasonable price for one gig up and one gig down like that. That, that is kind of, that seems to be a very important piece of it. They want a little culture. They want to know that they can go somewhere and it's going to be cool. Oftentimes they want to be within about a 30 minute trans, uh, transit to a large city. Um, so, you know, being able to, you know, top 25 market or something like that, where they can take a car or take a train or take something and get into somewhere that has all the things that they that, that they might want. Um, so those are kind of the things that they're and then a lot of times they're looking at cost of living. So they, they are looking typically um, California is so expensive to live in that a lot of them have been able to sell their house and buy the next house where they went in cash. <laughs> so, so, like this, so they so they um, uh, so they are looking for cost of living, cost of uh, the houses. Um, and, and so those are, those are things that they, uh, that they're taking into account as they do it. But I don't know, I don't know, I don't know a lot of friends that are kind of going to lots of different places. It's not a specific thing, but those seem to be the requirements that are pretty important. And then the final thing is if their families, they're paying attention to the school system at the bottom of every Zillow, you'll see this little, the rating of all the schools. And, um, that, that is a huge um, factor. Like the reason that I live where I live is because the schools where my kids were going um, were highly rated. Um, and, and, there, and everything that had a low rating was completely my, my wife just, just ignored <laughs> like that, that didn't exist for her. So if they have, if they have uh, families, it's a different, different puzzle. Absolutely. Uh, Mitch Hill. Uh, best place for work at home as far away from a refrigerator as possible. <laughs> Courtney Gooden. If I were to pick a place, you know, I'd want some place nice. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite places uh, to visit. If I had to work here, 
you know, Ansel Adams had his house here, Carmel by the sea, uh, beautiful place, uh, nice place to have a house to work. If, if his house is available for sale, has a great dark room, uh, and beautiful views, uh, sitting on a cliff overlooking the sea, the, uh, the, uh, temperature is moderate. It's close to San Francisco if you need to go into the big city for something. And uh, it probably has pretty good bandwidth. Clint Eastwood, remember, was the mayor for a long period of time there. Uh, Alex, you want to f- get back in on this? And if you're really stretching out a little bit, you're not worried about certain time zones or whatever, there is an incredible amount of fiber that goes into Mauritius. Mauritius is a large island that, that, that's outside, that's off of the east coast of Africa. And they have, they, they've really built themselves up as, as, as have access to, for internet. And so there's a lot of fiber that goes in there. There's a lot of beaches. It's a pretty nice place to live. Uh, so I've heard, I haven't been there. Um, but I'm, when I think about where I might end up someday where I'm just doing office hours with all of you and, and uh, managing things remotely. Mauritius comes up on the list. You know, the Seychelles even higher, but the Seychelles don't, doesn't have quite the same bandwidth. Yeah. Alex, uh, next question. From Alexander Knight on Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Has anyone on the panel used a Sony FSS700R cine camera? I found one used in good condition for $1,200 Canadian dollars that comes with a kit lens. I looked at a review on this, and it looks like it still produces excellent image quality. Goodbye. Mitchell, you're one of our son, uh, Sony gurus. I'm a What's Sony fanboy, uh, and I have used an FS7 um, not too long ago, and it made great pictures. So I would check to make sure it's in good condition as a used camera, particularly the lens, because you never know what kind of uh, use it got. It might have been driven hard and put away wet. Alex. Yeah, the, um, uh, the I used to own five or six of these, um, of the 700s. And we used them for all of, a lot of our early hangouts. And, you know, when we, th- that was our little production camera. So, the, you know, the E-mount is something that we had to kind of get past because we had a lot of other lenses and the kit lenses, I think is a, is an F4, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, and so we really wanted to go a little wider on that so, or a little um, more open than that. So I think that that was one of our challenges. Uh, color science on it is a little, is a little okay. So you really have to tweak the colors and really get in there. What, what comes out of the box has kind of a warm and a slightly uh, slightly greenish um, tint to it. So you just want to be, you know, you kind of have to think about how you're going to uh, get the color in there and, and know they're going to do a little work there. It's a nice little box. Um, it's HDMI only, so you just have to know that you're doing an HDMI output, um, but that wasn't that big of a deal for us either, especially nowadays. Before, it was hard because all the switchers were SDI. So now it's a little easier that we have these little ATEMs. Um, it's a great little camera, um, and I don't have a lot of, no, no complaints. The 900, by the way, though, does a lot of, uh, does really high speed internet, uh, high speed capture. I think it's up to 960 frames a second. We had one of those that we bought just for slow motion and that type of thing. And Cordy Gooden. Uh, I'm not sure because I don't have this camera. Maybe Alex can tell us what me, be careful about what media it records on because those Sony cameras, S by S memory cards that use that Sony media cards or CFast cards, which are extremely expensive these days. This is a much older one, and it was it was using the SD cards. So it's it's it's, it's recording SD, SD cards usually because they usually had those S by S SXS. I don't think. I, now I will admit my I, I'm, I'm nearly certain it was. 
I'm nearly certain it was an SD card. It's been a long time since I've used that camera, but I'm nearly certain that it was a, it was an either one or two SD cards in it. And but we almost never did that because we were capturing. Um, but I don't remember using S by S. We definitely had S. I think I would have noticed because we we used them a lot. And um, the S by S cards we used with the XL one or the X. Um, what is it? The X ones, FX ones. You could get an adapter X. to go S by S to SD card with a fast fast S, SD card. No, I don't think I don't think that's what we did though. I'm pretty sure we had just SD cards in there. Yeah. Alexander Knight has the thought. Well, if I if I were going to if I was going to get this camera, the way I would probably record is SDI out into some kind of Atomos dedicated recorder there. So I don't think the I'm not too worried about the internal media. But yeah, I was just curious about about the cost of the camera because I don't know what the market value is on this. Uh, Twelve hundred Canadians, about nine hundred dollars US. So assuming everything is in working order and it you know it hasn't been used super heavily, do, do we all think that that's a that's a fair price for it? Because I, I I don't know what they're worth okay uh let's move to the next question and next question coming in from jack rappel in breckenridge colorado uh colorado sorry about that uh telemetry data for a gopro could be considered metadata spatial audio is metadata has anyone connected the two for example unreal engine unity or godot i have not heard of anybody doing that yet it's an interesting idea alex your thoughts it, it depends on what what data it's it's actually grabbing. So um, you know the I don't know what kind of the telemetry data is a pretty basic set of data. I don't think it's doing things that would really affect your spatial and spatial. Remember is metadata, but it's also it can potentially be tracks um, that are there in beds. So so I don't know exactly what what's there. I'm just looking at that. I don't. Um, any telemetry data is just a, is a converter away from affecting something in, in Unreal or something in Atmos. And so um, you can definitely, um, there are ways I've seen someone, um, I just saw a demo of someone doing a motion capture where they're able to use a motion capture rod and <laughs> infect your audio, you know, from in, in Atmos, which was kind of cool. Um, so anyway, so I think that there's a lot of, lot of opportunities there. But once it's data, if it, if it has XYZ coordinates, uh, you can usually convert one set of one set of channels of data to another. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York. Have an old multimedia CD that requires Windows 95. Would it be easier to create a Windows 95 virtual machine using Wine, or should I spin up a physical machine? Jason Bash, what say you? Oh, David, no part of this is going to be easy. Um, I would go with Parallels. I think Parallels is probably your best bet. But what kind of multimedia CD requires Windows 95? Like, now you've got my curiosity peaked. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I would use a virtual. I, I probably wouldn't try to rebuild the computer. <laughs> rebuilding the computer, I don't even know if you could find the parts. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that if you went to your your local DMV, they probably all of those computers are probably Windows 95. So, um, so you might want to go, you know, look at a local government agency um, and uh, that hasn't been hacked yet, and see if they have a, a copy there for you to pull off. But otherwise, I think I'd probably use a virtual environment. And Courtney Gooden. Uh, the bigger problem might be how to interface, get that multimedia CD drive plugged into a virtual machine because most, uh, I don't know if any USB drive supported that multimedia CD format. So uh, you might have to plug it into an ISA, uh, you know, those 95 machine with an ISA connector for, or an old uh, yeah, SATA connection. So 
look into that first to make sure that you have a portable drive that you can load that multimedia CD into that will interface to whatever machine you're going to run your virtual machine on. Because if you're going to be playing it off that physical CD, that could be a problem. Nick. Oh, Jason Bates. Jason. Yeah, Courtney's concerns are are definitely to be heeded. I can tell you firsthand that Parallels can connect just about anything into an operating system that can be installed within it. And the handshake is is a lot of what you're paying for. So it, it will absolutely work with a modern, you know, even USB accessible drive. And um, the data kind of gets um, gets translated by these incredibly low level drivers that, that that is Parallels intellectual property. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado asks, when film is digitally scanned, does it also scan the audio, and how is this done? Mitch Hill, help us out. Boy, this sure is a Courtney uh, answer, but I'm, I'm thinking in, unless it's an optical soundtrack, there's nothing to be scanned. It's uh, composited later on. Uh, Courtney's holding up the rear here. Alex is next. Alex? Courtney will probably do it in more detail, but basically most modern scanners can either uh, they can either scan for the optical or magnetic. Um, so they're, both of those are supported by, um, I think, most of the scanners made in the last decade. And Courtney? Yeah, they have a, well, original negative scanners don't have audio on them at all because there's no audio on the film. Uh, audio is usually recorded double system. But if you're, record, if you're scanning in an old movie, you know, that is a print, a print of an old movie and not a negative uh, positive, uh, then there are uh, attachments that go on the film scanners that will scan an optical soundtrack or a magnetic head that'll pick up uh, up to the six track. But usually they'll transfer that separately, uh, separate from the scanning pass because the scanning pass may not be running at sound speed. So if they're not optically scanning the optical soundtrack, if it's a magnetic soundtrack, they'll just do a separate pass of that running at 24 frames per second so they can pull the soundtrack off the six-track 70-millimeter uh, print and uh, record that off to a workstation somewhere. And then they'll resync it later. Let's go to the next question. Alton Christensen from New York, New York. Is anyone using the Riverside Remote Recording app and service? Is it finally stable enough to use? A recent update added access to external cameras, pre-flight test recording, and some social-friendly fluff, too. Uh, Alex. I, I know a couple, I'm not using it, but I know a couple people that are using it, and they've been relatively successful. Um, there's some stability issues. There's also um, some odd windowing, windowing that, that Riverside does. So, I mean, I think that it, it's, it, it's solving that, that for 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 the moment. If I was going to look at it, I'd wait to see, you know, if, if you need it now, Riverside might be one of your best double end. The big advantage if you're listening to Riverside is that it double ends the record. So it is basically, it's recording locally and, and then uploading that while you're having the conversation. Now that makes me a little nervous that it does that. I'd, I'd rather have it just wait until it was done and then send it out, wait until the show's done. The advantage there is that you have your, you have a Zoom-like WebRTC experience back and forth, but then you end up with a much more pristine file in the end. Um, other things that double end are Stream Voodoo. Uh, we'll actually do a double end up to ProRes. I think Stream Voodoo will do ProRes 4444, <laughs> to be honest. So I think that you uh, you may want to look at Stream Voodoo there, um, as well as 
Uh, we know that Zoom has already announced that they're eventually they're going to support uh, double ending as well for both audio and video. So we, you know, that's a pretty big lift um, to, to do. But those would be the big three at the moment, unless you're going to do it in some uh, manual way. Are uh, again, um, take a take a look at all of those. Riverside is the one that's probably the most established. Stream Voodoo also p- provides double ending at very high quality, and uh, Zoom is is working on it. <laughs> so we should. So if you don't need it right now, I probably wouldn't get ahead of it. Next question. Paul Kovacs in Elkhart, Indiana. Need a good green screen that's 18 feet wide by 9 to 10 feet tall. Where is a good place to get one? Got a Westcott that has a fleece texture. Seems noisier under scopes. Use the backside, getting more powerful lights with RGB to try to get a higher IRE. Alex, help him out. Digital Digitalgreenscreen.com. This is the website for composite components. It is every is the only green screen that I have used inside the United States and most of the rest of the world in the last 30 years. <laughs> so, so anyway, Jonathan Erland and Kay Erland are, are the, uh, are the owners. Uh, Jonathan, I think has, he, I think he works, he works with the Academy now, uh, doing lots of research around this or he has in the past. And, um, uh, I will say that those green screens and the paint that they sell is just not, it's just not the same with anything else. Um, one of the things that, um, that they, that they, there's something about the green and it has to, I, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but the other thing that's really important is this made out of lycra. And so that lycra is, you can stretch it, you stretch it a little bit to a frame and then you, then you spray water on it and you wait a couple hours and it's perfectly flat. Um, and so it is really, uh, and I would never, uh, willingly use a non lycra green screen um, just because of the fact that you can pull it taut and you can spray it with a little water or steam it and it'll get nice and smooth. Um, but digitalgreenscreen.com is the only way to go um, for uh, that. And we, I bought, see, I bought uh, two or I bought two in the last year, I probably bought two or three screens from them. Mitchell Hill. Yeah, I'd like to mention a, a potential uh, contender for portable screens. It's a bit smaller than the one you mentioned, but they're talking about having a larger one made by a company called Sub2R. It is a self-lit green screen, which is an interesting concept because you don't have to deal with a lot of extra lights and getting things exactly right. It's got a remote that uh, you can set the lighting uh, to where it needs to be, and it uh, it throws a pretty good trace on the on the scope. So uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, it's have not you, quite you, that size. I have indeed have tested, tested it. it. It's it's very interesting. I, I liked it the most for the its portability and the fact that it was easy to get it lit because you just hit a switch yeah, and there I, it was I, I have one to test uh, as mitchell knows and um it's it's sitting there the way that my um the way that my studio is set up it's hard for me to get that into the frame and it's like it's requiring some engineer it, it's for more most people it would be very easy to add that screen for me it's hard and so it sits there and i go oh that's gonna take another hour or two for me to figure out how to get it to be so that it fills full frame but it doesn't hit my grid you know like there's a bunch of things that i'm that, that i'm that i'm i'm challenged um so it's been sitting there for me to kind of work that out and it looks really impressive i will tell you it is super easy to set up so um uh, it, i wish that they use the the lycra that i was talking about in the front but i don't think it matters because of those LEDs in the back 
And so um, I, I was really impressed. I think when I first pulled it, I, when I when the first sat there, I was like, oh, we'll see. I opened it up and put it together in maybe five minutes. I mean, it was without any instructions. I just kind of looked at the stuff and was, oh, I understand what this looks like. I think the feet it took me. I had to look at the little piece of paper that came with it. Um, so I have one in my in my office. And at some point, I'm going to I'm going to sneak up on everybody and put it up. Uh, so now you all have to look every day for the next couple of weeks to see whether it's up there. But I almost had I had to I just have to keep on rearranging things. So between meetings, I'm always rearranging things in this giant screen. I haven't taken it down. My wife's like, when are you going to actually use that screen? So um, so anyway, so because I have to move it out of my office when I do the show and then move it back in. So anyway, so I'm, I'm um, anyway, uh, I was curious what Mitch thought of it because it's, it's sitting there ready to be uh, tested. And I'm just trying to move a couple of things in my office to make it work. Mitch, you're on a comeback. Yeah, the the idea that you don't have to have special lights for it because it's its own light source is yeah, very uh, uh, significant. And I think it would be a good product to uh, take around as a uh, mobile. But I had the same problem, Alex, is that just, it just doesn't fit in this room. And, of course, I got this in my way, so it didn't cover this entire side of my screen. And here's the thing. I agree that the setup is very fast, but it's one of those flex things that's uh, times two and I, I went on uh, after hours. People watched me for an hour, freaking out, trying to get the flex you know, thing into its taco you know, the, shape. The, I, 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 um, uh, my, what changed my whole interaction with uh, the all these screens was Bill saying, "Just fold it into a taco and then pull it under." And what I do is I fold it into a taco, I pick it up, and I put my foot on the lower piece so that it doesn't slide away, and then I just pull it under and it, and I drop it. I just I don't try to push it down. I just drop it and it goes and it pulls together. Yeah, you said. <laughs> well, the key also is take the the two farthest away corners and taco those. That's the one thing I've seen people mess up. Uh, they try to do it on the two top corners, something like that. But the, the largest diagonal you can is the first step and taco that. Anyway, I don't even do it that way. I do it with you know? the two the two vertical ones, and it works. Okay. I can see how it would work way better if I did that. <laughs> well, I I learned that on camping things that are gigantic, and you can barely you know like which right. one am I going to go grab from five or yeah. eight feet away and try to get this thing to fold back up. Not Alex, crazy. have you tried to fold it yet, or is it still standing in the corner in your? Uh, well, you know, I'm sitting in the corner right now, but I but I folded a lot of them. I mean, because I have a gray screen that I use a lot, or I used to use for the show, and I use it for other things, and so um, so I have the uh, so I'm I um, fold that gray screen all the time. Um, yeah, but, but this try, is a, this, one. this is the double whammy because it's two flexible screens separated by a distance, and you've got right. to get them both. Now I feel like I have to try it. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll please I'm put it on it after hours. Uh, they saw me uh, jumping around, throwing <laughs> things, and. Everything else. By the way, the rule for that and for tents and things like that, if it's got porches or other things, fold them all in to get it into the most even squarish format that it will go without Mm -hmm. bending anything and then go to taco mode. So I'm just telling you, that's what I figured works. Let's move on. We've done this enough. Oh, dear. Douglas Carmichael is here. Two private equity firms are vying to acquire Avid Technology. For those dependent on Avid products, are you concerned about the future of the company? Uh, let's go to Alex. No, <laughs> not, not worried about the future of Avid. Uh, Avid is so well embedded into the into Hollywood, and I don't think that anyone is really replacing what Avid does uh, total uh, effectively. I think that the 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 company that could potentially at some point 
um, oust Abbott would be uh, probably resolved, but they would have to add a lot of things to it. Um, they're adding, I, and I don't think that, I don't think that mo- the, the issue is, is that Abbott is really well embedded, and I don't think most of the other companies care, care to try to dig into Hollywood because Hollywood is a relatively small market, and it's, and it would, in most times, what happens is they talk to editors and, they, and the editors say, well, this is what I, this is what I really like about my avid. That's not in premiere, not in final cut, not in resolve, whatever. And they start adding them. But it's every, when you talk to the manufacturers, every time they add them, um, what they get are more uh, requests from the editors and the editors never actually leave avid because they, you know, they know how to use it. <laughs> you know, like in, the, in there, they're getting, you know, they're getting paid a lot of money to do this. And so I, I don't think that that, I don't think we're going to see, um, uh, anybody ma- majorly, I think that Abbott has maybe a long-term problem, um, but I don't think that any time in the near future there's going to be issues. Um, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too worried. A lot of times when these uh, hedge fund groups come in and purchase a company like Abbott, you, you might worry because they'll come in and they'll streamline and they'll try and improve the bot, you know, the the bottom line, and they'll get rid of a lot of middle-level management. Uh, or in the worst case, if they have a lot of patents. They will buy the company for the patents and just throw away the company and sell on the patents and license them out. And, uh, you know, that's a thing you have to worry about. But I don't think any of Avid's patents are still in effect because they've been doing it for so long. They've probably all expired, so they're not sitting on any value there. And plus, the the two companies that they're thinking of buying it are Symphony Technology Group, STG, uh, and Francisco Partners. Uh, both of them are in the media business and you know, Avid also has Pro Tools. I think it's still part of the package. They might want to split that off to a separate company, but uh, I think they're going to want to keep it all together and keep everything in place and keep going on. They, I think the market caps around a billion dollars, but they have their fourth quarter. I mean, their uh, uh, quarterly earnings are coming out uh, on Wednesday. So we'll see how much they're worth on Wednesday. And, and oftentimes uh, when, when firms buy a company, they sometimes go the other way. Sometimes they split the companies and think that they can make more money that way. Sometimes it becomes an acquisition process. So they're going to buy the company and then they start buying other companies that are tangential to that company to try to build more synergy between the companies and to add value. And then they want to, of course, flip it in three to five years. I mean, that's, that's you know, and try to sell it for a larger number. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. So as we look at it, especially a media-based one, I think that they, they could be looking at separating Pro Tools and, and Avid away, um, or they could be looking at adding more, um, you know, companies to that portfolio so that they can, um, you know, make it more powerful as a group. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I think that uh, Avid will do just fine, as will Pro Tools. With uh, private equity firms who are buying up companies left and right all the time, and we don't even know about it half the time. But to give you an example of what you were just talking about, Alex, about companies that go in and uh, uh, chop companies up. Uh, Samsung bought Harman and a bunch of other companies, including AKG, DBX, JBL, uh, SoundWeb. All those companies were bought. And unfortunately, uh, from people that I talked to, uh, they have not done a good job of uh, of lording over those companies. They've kind of distrained them of their brand as opposed to making the product better. Even Studer. It was yeah. horrible. And, and- 
And I think that one of the, the company, one of the companies that's actually done a pretty good job is Audiotonics. So you have a, a, an overall company that owns, I mean, and you don't even notice that you, that they own all these different companies because they've allowed those companies to continue. Um, so they get, it, they, they do get synergistic advantages of they now have technologies available to each other that the other ones have, but SSL, Allen and Heath, Sound Devices, uh, Digico, all are part of the same. They're all owned by the same overall, um, company and, but they all feel very different. They're all very original. And they all serve the markets that they served in the past effectively. And when you talk to folks that are part of that group, they seem to be very, very happy with their life. <laughs> you know, like, so they, they, they enjoy working in that environment. And I think that they've done, I think that's one company that's probably done it better than almost anyone else. Uh, go ahead, Alex. I'm not going to make any predictions about what's going to happen. But the one thing that I would be concerned to, of uh, if I were Avid is uh, keeping up to date with all of the, the extreme competition that there is out there now with digital audio workstations. We see this with Logic, with the amount of investment that Apple has put into that platform. Obviously, I'm not going to say that, you know, there's going to be some other incumbent that's going to shake Avid's stake in the industry because they're very well embedded, like Alex uh, Lindsay said earlier. But the one thing I constantly see online anytime there's a new Pro Tools release is the sheer amount of anger and vitriol from users about how they're not keeping up with the competition. So they have clearly a lot of legacy code. They've finally come through the other end with the Apple Silicon native release with Pro Tools, but it took years, which I find very interesting because Apple gave developers a lot of time to work on updates and you know when the transition from 32 to 64 bit they had years to do this and they took their sweet time with that so they obviously have their own challenges with their internal code base hopefully they've come out the other end with that with the new native release of uh, pro tools but we'll see what happens in the next couple years alex you had a follow-up yeah yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it, we do have to understand that for some of these companies that have really old code bases, um, making the change is not is not trivial, you know, and it's really really hard, especially if they're if they're supporting um, two two platforms. So if they're cross platform between Windows and Mac and potentially Linux. If you didn't start that way and you didn't, I mean, if you didn't do it in the, in the recent past, that can be a very, very daunting thing because it's every little button. And it's every, and, and a lot of times you're writing things, you wrote things in a way that, you know, they worked at the moment, but now you have to really rethink and rebuild those things. So I think that's been really hard, but it's hard to, um, it's hard to understate the level of, of, market penetration that Pro Tools and Avid have inside of the traditional entertainment market. It is what everybody's using <laughs> for, for a lot of these things. Um, there's some outliers that are using other things, but in inside that small that small little box, uh, everybody's using those those. And they're what makes it work is that they're all using it. They all get feedback. They're all they're able to send things fluidly back and forth, relatively fluidly between Avid and and Pro Tools. And so it's a really hard thing to crack open. The real challenge is really is does that market what's going to happen to that market? You know, like. We're, we're seeing, you know, a, a you know, diffusion of the markets um, and that we've been seeing over the last 30 years that just keeps accelerating to where more and more, if I look at my, you know, my kids, uh, my kids are watching YouTube. Like they're not watching, uh, they barely watch TV. And so it's the, does that, is that market at risk is really the question. And we're going to see a lot as we come out of the, out of the strikes and everything else. But the whole, that whole market is, is if you look out five or 10 years, it's unclear where that market will be. But that's, that, that's their real risk. Not so much. They have that, they'll, they'll have that market until it hits the ground. Let's go to the next question. 
from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is the comparison between the MB7 Beta USB mic and the Audio-Technica AT2020 USB and the AT2020 USB-X microphones? Alex. Uh, I have not used the um, the... Uh, I have not used the the 2020 USB X, but I, I will say that the, I feel like the bass response on the SM7B, and I'm, I'm not sure about the MB7 Beta. I'm not. I haven't. I haven't used that either. Um, so I haven't used them particularly. But I will say that the Shures in general, I found had. Um, I found that the ATs were had a little bit more air in them. Um, you know, so some of the high response sounded. You know, was more there. Um, and, and there was better bass response in the Shures, at least from my experience of those mics that are very similar to the mics that you're talking about. Mitchell Hill. I'm not sure the MB7 Beta, even though the number is close to a Shure, is a Shure microphone. Um, I think somebody else has that. I think we bumped into this before. Oh, okay. There's an MB7 brand that's different than a Shure, even though they name it kind yeah, of the same. I mean, it's an easy mistake to make. It's made often, but just I just want to alert you to it. Okay, something to look out for. Paul, let's go to the next question. And Douglas Carmichael asking, Jason, that was an impressive display. What Dante devices are connected to your network? Jason? <laughs> oh, you fell for the an eye candy, uh, Douglas. It, the answer is not nearly as much as I used to have. So, you know, this is, a, this is an X32. And for those who haven't seen the app, this is, you know, this is what shows it to you. And at the moment, there's only one output. That's, that's really all that you're seeing. The rest of it is, um, you know, is the, the beauty of spectre metering that, you know, that can be done in, in real time that is uh, exquisitely cool for this kind of thing. So I, I have a, a host of, you know, Dante AVIOs that, that aren't being used for much at the moment. I'm just, I'm playing around with using the X32 for surround sound and, and putting the old studio back together. So there it is. Pro tip, put some monitors up around your studio, run these things on them, and you can raise your prices by 20%. Let's go to the next... <laughs> Next question. Here's Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, with another question. Discuss Meta's text-based app threads rolling out the ability to see your liked posts. And Alex, help us. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see. What's great is we have two products that are similar to each other, and they're going to get to play against each other. So I think it's going to make both products better. Um, I have I, there was a lot of like, hey, we're all going to see what Threads looks like, and then I haven't seen anybody really doing anything in Threads after that. There's probably some folks there, but I think most people went. Most of the established folks in X went back to X, um, and so I think that it's going to be interesting to see. I don't really care about seeing my like posts. But um, but I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if those innovations make any difference in the market penetration. Next question. Jack Rupel from Brecken Breckenridge, Colorado is asking, is object-based audio in your workflow? Can object-based audio be used to enhance the learning experience? Courtney, what say you? Yeah, I doubt it. It's not in my workflow. The problem with object-based audio is you're going to need a Dolby Atmos renderer of some sort. Uh, or something like that to, to render object-based audio. Um, and, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm disappointed just in, in rendering, you know, 7.1 or 5.1 Dolby uh, on home stereo systems, because half the time you'll, something will be out of phase and then you can't hear the dialogue or uh, it sounds weird. It sounds phasey. Um, there are more problems with the, you know, the home situation, uh, if I were recording, you know, for theatrical release, you know, you might 
use, uh, you know, object-based audio because in a theater with, you know, 28 channels or however many it is in Dolby Atmos these days, uh, you have a lot more flexibility to move things around for special effects and, and, you know, for that stuff. But generally dialogue is still mixed left, center, right. Uh, and they're not playing around with that very much. And the only thing the object-based audio is for is for special effects, you know, so I don't think it would give you anything to enhance the learning experience. I think it would be more of a distraction than anything else. Alex. I, I think that when you get people excited about learning, they learn faster. <laughs> so we can talk about the raw, like does it, does it gather more data? But when people get excited about it, and I think that when they feel something, they, they can, you know, the acquisition, I've definitely felt that in the training that I've done in the past, when you make it better. Now, have I used object-based audio for training? I have not. Um, but I definitely see uh, the possibility of giving people, I know that um, when we're using, you know, uh, surround i think that there's something that's very immersive that is is something that gets you more excited about that process and i so i i, I think that we should um you know there's going to you're going to see more and more of this a lot of the trouble that courtney's describing are things that are not i mean it depends on what platform you're on uh on the apple platform because apple's supported atmos for the last uh, five years uh, everything just works. We <laughs> just plug it in, it just goes. And so designing for that platform, uh, you know, we rarely see any idiosyncrasies. And so, so it just depends on, on what platform, well, you know, for generally monetary reasons, uh, Android and Windows are pretty, pretty far behind, but they're, I think they're definitely starting to come around. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. How do you archive Matterport scans locally to free up Matterport cloud storage, which only allows four Matterport scans at a time? Can a Matterport scan exist in any form outside of the Matterport ecosystem? Alex. Uh, I think you, you can save more in the cloud. You just have to pay for it. <laughs> so so it, it doesn't limit you. I just want to make sure what people are listening. It doesn't limit you to four. I think the free version limits you to four. Uh, it's really designed to get you in there and to get, get you subscribing. So, so I, I, you know, you're not, you, you can do that. I don't think that the, the platform allows you to take it offline. So um, I don't know if there's any way to save it um, there without that, um, that I know of. You can, in the older Matterport um, system, I used to have one of the old boxes of Matterports and we used to use that. Uh, before I had the VLK 360 and uh, the on um, the older Matterport, you could export models out of it, but it was never it never had the same level of interactivity. It wasn't tied together. So um, it wasn't particularly useful uh, without uh, being able to put it on the Web. Let's get this next one real quick. Hey, it's John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. What is the software training company the panel recommended previously? Alex. <laughs> so many, so many. I don't know how to answer this. I'm going to guess the one that we talk about the most is Ripple training. So if you're if you're talking about how do I learn uh, logic or motion or Final Cut or Resolve or uh, you know lots of other things, the one we talk about the most here is probably Ripple training. Other great um, solutions are uh, the. Um, uh, what used to be lynda.com is now LinkedIn training and they, they, uh, or LinkedIn learning and LinkedIn learning does a great job. Uh, if you get pre the premium subscription to LinkedIn, it just comes with it. So, so you can look at that as well. It's 25, I think it's still 25 bucks a month for LinkedIn learning all, and it's been that way forever. Um, but I think that that's another one that we look at. And then after that, I don't know a lot of other ones that I've used in the, in the near past, but you know, ripple is really a, oftentimes a standard for us. 
All right. Thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, SIGGRAPH coverage tomorrow, 3 p.m., 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Office hours is going to be on the show floor covering everything. Are we sure Tuesday, it's 3 p.m.? Is it, did you move Well, that's what I saw I as the last one. I looked at it just before we came in. I might be wrong, so check the show tomorrow, okay. and we will announce when it's going to be there for sure. Uh, Tuesday, Alan Hawks continues the 3D production series, uh, so that's going to be fascinating. Jonas Dattel will be here on Thursday to talk to us about PlayoutB, and in between, a big show on Wednesday. Carl Winkler of Electrosonics will be here. Thank you all for watching. Thanks to the producers. Thanks to the panelists, all the crew and back end people. This takes a village and we wouldn't be able to do it without it. After Hours is always going 24-7 so we can see you over there. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Dang, I was going to try to get out at 15 past left, 45 seconds for credit. I missed. Never, never, never rush the close. Never rush the close. Doesn't matter. Like, if you've missed it, you missed it. Just let it roll through. Just speed up the credits. <laughs> just, you just, you don't, but once you're there, you're there. I always thought that somebody would complain about credits on TV or movies when they just spin them by. Don't the people that uh, get credited, don't they have a I've problem complained. with it? Yeah. Or where they may, they shrink them down to one third the screen size, and they put up a big promo for something coming up next. You know.